Thank you, Donnie. Good morning, church family. How y'all doing today? Fantastic. I'm so excited to be here to break open the bread of life, as Donnie mentioned. You know, the Word of God is really the core of what we are all about here at Ashley River Baptist Church. And I just want to give a shout out to Emory and the group to, who's uh, preparing for the music camp this uh, July. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing those children sing those truths about our Good Shepherd and how he gently leads us, as we just sung to, uh, this, this morning. Um, last week, we talked about three motivations for the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ, and we have three motivations. Uh, the first is the giver himself, Jesus Christ. He is the motivation by which we have all come into the faith, and we are to then share the faith with the world around us. And then he's given us gifts. He has gifted each and every one of us, every person in this room. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are part of the body of Christ, then you have a spiritual gift. If you're not using that spiritual gift or gifts, please reach out to us and find a way to plug in and use what God has gifted you with for the common good of his body. And then thirdly, we looked at, of course, the growth of the church. The growth of the body is a direct result, an outcome from us being in Christ and using our spiritual gifts to edify one another, to build us up. And that's what we are all here to do today. And so this morning, we're going to continue in our study in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. It's page 1135 in your pew Bible, which again, I invite you to bring your own copy of God's word. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 17 to the end of the chapter here this morning and saying a few words about it. Um, but I want to first ask a question. How many of you have ever been to a conference or a seminar or to a convention or even a party when you meet somebody new, you've never met them? What is the first question you typically get asked? What do you do? What do you do? You see, and I, I, I go to, in my business experience, I go to lots of conferences and conventions, and that's initially what people ask. And of course, I tell them I'm the, I'm the uh, director of sales uh, for our conveying division uh, as part of my company. Uh, if you were to ask me, are you the pastor? I'm the pastor of this church. Some might even ask me, you know, what's my relationships? So I am the son of William Donald Disharoon. I'm the husband of Susan Disharoon. I'm the I'm the father of Zach, Seth, and Abby Disharoon. I'm the brother of Paula and Kim and Laurie and Shelly and Todd. And we all have relationships like this, right? We all are, identify ourselves. I'm from Baltimore. And so I was born and raised in Baltimore, which makes me a Baltimoran. Okay, and so I, um, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of uh, the Baltimore tradition, you know, and, um, and so, but I moved here to Charleston, so now I identify myself as a, uh, you know, kind of, you've accepted me a little bit, I'm now a Charlestonian, right? And we all identify ourselves that way, but in the philosophical way of looking at our lives in relationship to this world, there are the two modes, the two poles being and doing. You understand the question that most people ask is, what do you do? But my question for us this morning, and I believe this is where Paul is getting at in this letter to the Ephesians, who are you? Who are you? You see, we see this oftentimes, and if you think about it, uh, that, that you are who you are, not because of what you do, 
But the fact of the matter is you do what you do because of who you are. And so this morning, we want to dial into this a little bit. The the Bible's replete with this kind of an idea. It says, uh, Jesus would say, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. The Bible also says, search me with all of your heart, and you will find me. Jesus would say, um, if any man come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. And so we see this idea that the motivations and the source and the genitive nature of everything that comes out of us is based on where we find our identity. And so this morning, I want us to turn to Ephesians 4. Please stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll walk through it together. Verse 17 begins this way, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25 says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Father, this is your word. We pray that it will call us to a deeper level of commitment to following you, to surrendering our will each and every day to you, that the glory of God, that the power of the Spirit will have its way within our lives in such a way that every thought that we have, every word that we speak, every action that we take, every habit we form, builds the character of God that you have so intentioned for our lives that we might make a positive impact on our world even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, as I think about this particular passage, there really are three transformations for our becoming new in Christ. Three transformations. The first one is to transform your identity. 
transform your identity. Look at what it says there in verse 17. Uh, Paul says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Notice what he's saying there. No longer live as Gentiles. Now this is ingenious by Paul. I find this to be an ingenious way for him to address these new believers. He tells them, don't live any longer like the Gentiles do. But it's interesting, back in chapter 3, verse 1, if you flip back there, he calls them Gentiles. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. He calls them Gentiles. In chapter 2, a little further back, verse 11, it says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles. So it's interesting. It's kind of like somebody coming up to you and say, you know what? No longer live like an American. And most of us would say, well, I am an American, you see. But, the, but the, the essence of what Paul's getting across is that now that you are in Christ, you're no longer primarily a Gentile. You're no longer primarily an American. Your identification has a hierarchy, you see, and therefore you are no longer connected to that former way of life. You have a new identity, and that new identity is in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Do not live any longer like the Gentiles. Um, It's interesting because a school teacher not too long ago uh, in southern Atlanta found that her students, this was her first year, she found that her students were woefully below the grade level of first grade. Most of them couldn't even identify the letters or numbers. They were passed on from kindergarten and they were not ready for first grade. And she knew that she had the standardized testing coming up in the spring. And as she tried to teach these children who came from very difficult backgrounds, many of them were very, very uh, against uh, against the odds of them learning. And she was like fraught with just this angst about how do I get these kids to really want to and then to achieve the next level in their learning. And one day she just kind of noticed that all of these children were staring out the window as the third graders were at recess. As if those young first graders were aspiring towards being a third grader. They're a little bit taller. They're a little bit faster. They're probably a little bit smarter than me. And it caught her attention such that she then designed her entire curriculum to help those young first graders want to achieve third grade status. And she called them all scholars. She said, you all are scholars. And a scholar is someone who learns for a living. This is what they do. They are a learner. And they learn great things. And all of you are going to stand up every single day and you're going to say, I am a scholar on my way to being a third grader. You see, the idea here is that these children were so far from an adult's level of understanding that it was too far of a bridge to span, but they saw third graders as an intermediary way for them to achieve that next level in their learning. And she captured this and had all of them on board by Halloween. Well, she taught them every single day. All of the letters, all of the sight words, the dogs, the cats, the house, all of these sight words. And lo and behold, here a woman who had adopted a class who couldn't even read letters. 
Six months later, they took the standardized test and every single one of them passed. They were now on their way to third, third grade. You see, that's what Paul here is trying to do with these Gentile believers. Don't go back to that old way of life because here's what the, the Gentile is like. You know, the word Gentile, we don't throw that around much today, but a Gentile is simply a non-Jewish person, anybody who is non-Jewish. In fact, Gentile comes from what the Jews would characterize as people who are not like us. We're, We're Jewish people. We are the people of God, okay? But anybody else who's not Jewish, they're Gentiles, you see? And these Gentiles lived a life that was apart from God. Now, I want us to see here in verse 18 an interesting downward spiral, and we see it in our world today. And I'm going to get very honest about where we are as a culture here in America today, because Paul is really describing for us the process by which we get to where there's such evil and wickedness in the world. He says here in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, one, and separated from the life of God. Now, there's a cause and effect relationship here over the next several phrases. The fact that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. If it's the life of God, then it's what? The death of man. You understand? The opposite of the life of God is the death of man. And what does he say? Why are they darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Do you all see that? Because of the ignorance that is in them. That word ignorance is agnoia, the Greek word agnoia. And do you know what it literally means? Now, you and I would say today that if somebody's ignorant, they're uneducated. They haven't been informed. They haven't been taught. They don't have the knowledge. But that's not what agnoia means. Agnoia is a willful resistance of truth. A willful resistance of truth. That is what ignorance is here in the scripture. What we see in Romans 1, Paul, who also wrote Romans, what does he say? That the people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. They are feeding their flesh. They are feeding the sinful nature. And of course, that is what Paul is addressing here. He is saying that the reason that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God is because they are ignorant. They are willfully disobedient and suppress the truth. But then we go further. Look at what it says then. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? The hardening of their hearts. You see how it works. When you harden your heart, it's like you become calloused. Now, I'm not a guitar player, but Mason will tell you that after a while, when you're playing that guitar and you are really having to hold down those strings, you develop calluses on your fingers. How many of you play an instrument where you develop calluses? Okay, or you play sports and you develop calluses on your feet because you're cutting here and there on the basketball court. The idea is these calluses become a way that's kind of built up around you. No longer is the skin tender, it's tough, it's hard. That's the idea behind hard-heartedness. We see this in Pharaoh in the Old Testament. He was hard-hearted. 
He, was, he had hardened his own heart and then God took the opportunity to harden him even further so that his glory might be revealed in the deliverance of the Israelites under Pharaoh. But the idea here is that we human beings will harden our own hearts toward God. Uh, Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's darkened. Darkened understanding, futile thinking, worldly wisdom, which is temporal, fickle, and fallible. God has called all of us to a new life under God, but we have to leave the old life of sin. And of course, that's what Paul is telling them to do. Because then he says in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity. Folks, let me ask you a question. Are there shows on television and in the movies today or on Netflix or Prime Video that 20 years ago you would have been aghast at? Are there things that are happening in our culture today that 20 years ago we would have said, oh no, oh no, never, not, that would never happen. But we see it happening today. Do you realize that the, the, the devil, who is the prince of the power of this air, is selling lies across our culture? And we are becoming desensitized to it. You see, Paul here is addressing this in the first century. He's saying, you're losing all sensitivity. Every one of us. I'm here to tell you that what happens is that it's going to continue. It's going to continue. Why? Because Paul says there, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Do you understand? That is the condition of the human sinful nature. We shouldn't be surprised by this, but we should be caught up. Our attention should be aware that people are so far from God that they have no understanding of the true life that they can have in him. That they're chasing the breadcrumbs of life. If only I'll get a bigger house. If only I can have a nicer car. If only I get this job. If only I get this person to marry and have a family with. If only I can be in place for that promotion. Then I'll be happy. If only I can have this one hit of a drug. That'll make me feel better. If only I take this one glass of beer or wine. That'll make me feel better. If only I can have sex with this person, then I'll feel better. You see what's happening? If only I. And Paul here is saying, no, no, it's not about you. Why? Because you are now in Christ. And if we get to a place where we don't stand up for the holiness of God in our lives, we will become like the culture around us. This church must be a lighthouse on a hillside. This church must be the kind of people who aspire to live our lives for Jesus Christ every single day. And it doesn't happen overnight. But now that you are a Christian, now that we are Christians, this is what the Bible has to say. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
John 1, 12. Yet to all who did receive him, that is Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Do you want new life? Then you submit and surrender your will each and every day to Jesus Christ. When you do, he gives you the true life. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. Those who take the narrow road are in Christ. We have to transform our identity. But then secondly, we have to transform our mind. Transform our mind. And I'm sorry, I have to give you these inform- this information. By the way, use your sermon notes as a way to study the word of God as we go through the week. There's many references here that I use. And there are three steps to transforming your mind. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, this is not easy. Because our mind is, is um, you know, it's kind of influenced by everything we see and do. Everything on our phone, our cell phone. We hold it up and it's just, it's, it's coming at us. Information is flooding our minds every single day. And you have to really discipline yourself to take the word of God and open it up. And let it become your teacher, your influence in life, you see. And we've gotten away from this. Culture has gotten away from this. They even give you a Bible app. Okay? I'm not saying a Bible app is bad. I'm just saying that it's a step that now when that Bible app is being read by you, guess what's popping up on your banner? Notifications for other things. How many of you have been in the Bible app and said, oh, I'm going to read the word I'm going to read the word, and then you get notifications that then you go, oh, I've got to go check on that. There's a text that came from, there's this email that came in, I've got to resign. See what happens? See, the culture is just taking you away from the word of God. My encouragement is to get with this, put your phone away, go throw it in the backyard, give it to the dog, take it to the neighbor's house, do whatever you got to do. Let it sit. You know what? Maybe even charge that thing outside of your bedroom. Woo! Wouldn't that be something revolutionary for all of us? You know? And then ultimately, then what we say is we get up, there's the Bible, we read it. We stand here, we're going to read God's word because that's what shapes your mind. You see? And there's three elements to really transforming your mind. First, accept the truth of Christ. And Marie said it. You know, Jesus came to save, to seek and to save that which is lost. It's his death. It's his sacrifice. It's his love for us that is the truth of Christ. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus is talking to Jewish people. He's talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And he says this, to the Jews who had believed him, that's interesting because there were some Jews who were like, I hear you, I believe you. To those Jews that believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen. Amen. That's what he's saying. The truth will set you free. Well, look at what it says there in verse 21. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You see, he is the essence of truth. 
And so the best way to transform your mind is to, first of all, accept the truth of Christ. Well, how do you accept the truth of Christ? (laughs) You got to know it. (laughs) You got to read it. What is the truth of Christ? First of all, it's the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Laid out for us, each Gospel writer comes at it from a different angle. The life of Christ. Watch what he does. Watch what he says. Watch what he spends his time doing. Take note of that and try to emulate it. And then we look at the, uh, the book of Acts. And what is, it, what is Acts all about? Luke, the writer of Acts, is really detailing the early church. How, in fact, Christ established the, the model and then the church sought to live it out. They sought to live out the model that Christ established. That's the truth of Christ. And then all of the letters, from Paul's letters to James' letters to Peter's letters to John's letters, all these letters of the New Testament are there to help inform us of the truth of Christ, what we are to believe and how we are to behave in light of what we believe. You see, that's what Paul is driving home here in Ephesians. The first three chapters were, were, what do we believe about Christ? And then these last three chapters of Ephesians, now how do we behave in light of that truth, you see? Because when you and I get to the place where we understand and we know the truth of Christ, then we will have the decision to make to obey him, to obey him, to do what he says to do. Well, I'm not going to leave Revelation out because I'm going to be preaching on Revelation in the fall. What is Revelation? It's the first five words of Revelation are the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does the word revelation mean? It's a disclosure. It's an unveiling. It's a, hey, let's, let's all understand who this is. We can see it for what it is. Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The full consummation of God's redemptive plan is played out in the book of Revelation. And then he say, I can't understand it. We'll come in the fall and we will walk through it together because God's word is able to be understood. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you and he's the one who wrote it. So you can understand it, okay? Many people don't understand it because they haven't let the Holy Spirit teach them. And so we'll walk through that. But the bottom line is you have to accept the truth of Christ and then you have to adopt the mind of Christ. Look at what it says in verses 22 and 23. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being uh, corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. In Romans 12, Paul would say this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You understand, adopting the mind of Christ is to be in his word and understand the perspective of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Every single day is an opportunity for you and I to adopt the mind of Christ. Every day is a new day for us. And every day we can wake up and we say, Lord, this is your day. Give me the mind of Christ as I deal with my family. Give me the mind of Christ as I deal with my coworkers. 
Give me the mind of Christ as I talk to my neighbors or as I meet strangers. When I go through the drive through window, give me the mind of Christ on how I can speak into that person's life who's working at that window. It's a miserable job for that person. How can I make it a day where it's a blessing for them? This is what the mind of Christ is about. He constantly wants us to influence others in a positive way. How are you doing that? The first thing I found that really works is put a smile on your face. Smile. Smiling puts the guard down, lets people into your world, allows them to know that you are a friendly person. Smile. So many of us, you know, it takes more muscles to smile than it does to frown. Did you know that? That's why most of us have this, you know, we've got this mouth that drops and it's no fun to look at that, right? I always tell people, notify your face that you love Jesus, okay? And it's important for us to have that. And then thirdly, not only accepting the truth of Christ and adopting the mind of Christ, but then we have to assimilate the attributes of God. Look at what it says there in verse 24. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice what it says. Created, you were recreated, restored, made new. To be like who? To be like God. This takes us back several weeks to when I talked about how God wants to reflect his glory through the church, through you and I. We are the body of Christ. Christ lives in our hearts, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and it is God who shines through us. His glory has to show out to the world. And so we see the Trinity working in and through the church. And he says here two of the attributes, one is true righteousness and the other is holiness. True righteousness implies what? That there's false righteousness. True righteousness is the opposite of false righteousness. You know, Paul addressed this over and over and over again in the New Testament. He kept telling the Jews, listen, the righteousness by works is not the plan of God. It's not about keeping the law. You can't do it. The whole point of the law was to teach you that you can't keep the law. The promise that I have through Abraham was that I was going to bring you righteousness through Jesus Christ and you were to access that righteousness by faith. And so what he does is he contrasts the righteousness of works, which will never get you there, and the righteousness of faith. You see, you and I are made righteous not because of what we do, but because of who we are. We are in Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. That's how it works. That's the righteousness that comes from God. Romans 3 says it beautifully. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, you see. And so that's where we assimilate true righteousness. But then secondly, we also assimilate his holiness. You know, in the Old Testament and in Leviticus, believe it or not, God says, be holy even as I am holy. Now, you and I would sit here and go, how can I be holy like God? Well, you can, except for the fact that God lives in you. To the extent that you surrender 100% of your life to him, it is to that extent that you will experience the holiness of God working in and through you. Peter said it himself. Peter would say this, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
holy. Peter is, of course, quoting that Leviticus passage. And so holiness doesn't happen overnight. How do you become more holy? It takes work. It takes work. And so Paul then moves us to the third way in which we can be transformed, and that is in our relationships. Now he gets down to meeting the rubber meeting the road. Look at verse 25. It says here, and there are seven behaviors, seven behaviors that we're going to look at here briefly. Number one, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So he is basically saying, be truthful. Be truthful. Um, In uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, we see one of the Ten Commandments is this. What does it say? Do not bear false witness. When you go into a courtroom as a witness, what do they do? They ask you to hold your right hand up, put your hand on the Bible, and they say, I, what? I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the whole truth. You understand that truth then can be something that's bifurcated. How many of you parents have seen your children tell half-truths? They, they somehow justify telling the truth, but the idea behind it is that they are not telling the whole truth. They may acquiesce to one aspect of it that you happen to know, but then they won't tell you everything. But guess what? That's not just for the children. That's for us adults as well. Do we not all do that? A lot of us are not truthful in the way in which we deal with each other. And of course, it's interesting, he says here, because we are all members of one body. So he's talking about truthfulness within the body of Christ. Are you truthful? The second one is be self-controlled. Notice what he says there. In your anger, do not sin. He's quoting here from Psalm 4. Psalm 4, David David wrote that psalm. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, here's an interesting observation. Does he say you can't get angry? That's not what he's saying here, is he? He doesn't say you can't get angry. In fact, if we know anything about the life of Christ towards the end, as he walked into Jerusalem and he saw the money changers at the temple, was he angry? He sure was. That's righteous anger. That's anger. That's being angry for the right reasons. But even in that, he says, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Because he says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Be self-controlled. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, being self-controlled. Thirdly, be generous. Look at what he says there in verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. We are to be generous. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the church, he says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows generously will reap generously for God loves a what? A cheerful giver, right? All of us are givers. We're part of the family of God. All of us give of our resources to the work of the church and the work of the kingdom, the mission. We, when we give, we should do so cheerfully. We shouldn't sit there and write out the check and go, no, that's not the way God wants your heart to be. He wants you to be happy to do it. Why? Because it comes from a heart of saying, it's all his anyway. It's all his anyway. What you have is on loan to you from him. Isn't that powerful? So everything we have in this life, if we begin with the right worldview, the the right perspective, it's all God's. So therefore, he has enabled us with certain resources so that we can do what? 
steal from other people because we think we deserve to have it? No. He wants us to share it with those in need. This is what the church is all about. The Christian faith has been one of the most giving sects of groups over the course of history because we understand what the stewardship of God is all about, you see. And so we are to be generous. And then fourthly, we are to be encouraging. Look at what he says in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and it may benefit those who listen. So be encouraging. Encourage one another. Strengthen one another. When somebody's struggling, the best way you can do it, what does it mean to encourage? It means to give courage. To give a person the courage to face whatever they're facing. It is a beautiful gift. It's, a, it's one of the spiritual gifts. Some of you are encouragers. I met with somebody just a couple of weeks ago who is a, a, such an encourager to me as a pastor. And they are constantly encouraging me through this process. And I love it because they're using their spiritual gift. But Paul's saying here, even if it's not your spiritual gift, we are to do it because it's part of God's kingdom. And then, fifthly, he says, be holy. And we've already talked about this, but look at what it says there. It's very interesting. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, to grieve something is to put it at odds with where it wants to be. It's, it's kind of counterpoint to what they want. And the Holy Spirit that lives in you It will not overpower you. It will not take over. It wants you to submit to it. The Holy Spirit wants you and I to surrender to its leadership in our lives. I can't love people the way the Holy Spirit can love people. So if I give up what Randy wants, then the Holy Spirit will have his way. When the Holy Spirit has his way with you, friends then all of a sudden, your life comes into clear focus. You start seeing things that are not at this physical level. You don't see things at this level. You see things at the supernatural, the spiritual level. And when you start seeing things at the spiritual level, all of a sudden, God really starts moving in your life. But it begins with you and I surrendering to the Holy Spirit each and every day. Don't grieve him. Submit to him. And then, of course, our memory verses, verse uh, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Do you remember in Matthew 9? Verse 35, what does it say? He looked out over the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion for people. Do you have a compassion for people? Once again, in our own flesh, we can't have compassion for people, especially people who look and act very different from us. But how is the church having influence on the world? Many of us just come huddle in this room. Instead of letting our light shine outside the room. You see, the greatest work of the Christian is not on Sunday morning. This is when we surrender our bodies as living sacrifices. 
The real work of the Christian is on Monday through Saturday. The people that God brings into your life, what influence are you having on them for the glory of God? Oh, when people find out I'm a pastor, they all of a sudden start acting different. Isn't that funny how that works? People just start, you know, oh, I can't cuss around you now because you're a pastor. I'm like, they don't get it. They don't get it. Jesus came for the lost. Jesus came for the sick. If he came for the healthy, they wouldn't have needed a doctor. But the great physician came for the sick. Folks, there are people in our world who are darkened in their understanding. They are far separated from God and the life of God. And they are ignorant in the sense that they are resisting the truth of God. You have the truth. You have the the power within you, the Holy Spirit living in you to love those people unconditionally. That's our job as the church. Monday through Saturday. And then what happens on Sunday? We celebrate his goodness and his working through us as the body of Christ. And then finally, be forgiving. Oh, the word forgive here is charismai. Charismai. We get the word in the English charisma from it. Charisma. And it's interesting. It's kind of like having the ability to be a person who is affable with others in such a way that whatever sin they've committed against us, we can let it pass. We can let it go. We forget about it. We let it walk out the door and never remember it again. That's what the essence of charisma is. In fact, it is closely tied to another Greek word, charis. Charis, which is the Greek word for grace. Now, what is grace? giving somebody something they don't deserve. So the idea here is that you're really gracing somebody when you forgive them. You're gracing them. You're giving them something they, they don't deserve. They've sinned against you. You know, Peter thought he was being really holy when he said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? What did Jesus say to him? No, 70 times seven, which is a euphemism for saying always. There's never a time when you should not forgive your brother. The point that Jesus is bringing out is that your forgiveness is based on the forgiveness that God had in you through me, Jesus Christ. You see, you were forgiven at the cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, Jesus would say. Well, you and I are sitting here. We are forgiven. Why would we not forgive others? Forgiving others is something, a blessing to them. It's a chorus. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. And it's saying to them, I love you in spite of the ways in which you may act. Behavior happens that way. We don't go out intentionally wanting to get angry and yell at somebody. We do it in the heat of a moment, you see. When we do that, then we are sinning, and that sin is something that's sitting there, and there's a reconciliation that happens between people, and it must happen. Otherwise, you get rifts. Are there people in your life where you still have a rift today? You won't speak to them. You won't talk to them. God, that's not God's will. God's will is that you forgive them. Because here's the key. Forgiveness really helps the one forgiving more than it helps the one who needs to be forgiven. Because if you're carrying around that bitterness and that resentment and that anger in your heart, then it's killing you. And it's robbing you of the joy of Christ. Forgive, Jesus says through Paul in this passage, just as in Christ God forgave you. So we see We have to transform our identity. We have to transform our minds. 
and we have to transform our relationships. And when that happens, oh, I can't, we won't have enough room in this sanctuary to bring the people in who want to be rightly related to Jesus Christ. How many of you are willing to go out and be mission-minded people this week? How many of you who are ready to say, let me introduce you to a Savior who has forgiven you the debt in full? If that's our heart, then we have to remember this. Watch your thoughts because they become your words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because that becomes your character. When you work it backwards, if you take on the character of Christ, then you form good habits, holy habits, generous habits, wholesome habits, and those habits become your actions. You start loving people unconditionally. And those actions then become words that you can send out and they are a fragrant offering to those around you. And then it changes your mind and the ways in which you view yourself as a part of the work of Jesus Christ in this world. Because here's the deal. This world is dark and we are the light. The light of Christ. Let us all submit to the light of Jesus Christ and go out to a dark world and show them the greatest hope that they've ever seen. Amen? Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul. We are to be children of light. We are to be people who love those around us, not because of our ability, but because we have surrendered ourselves to you, dwelling in our hearts, to the Holy Spirit, living in us, and to the glory of God. Father, as we respond today to this passage, we respond to you, our Savior, our Redeemer, that, Lord, we will make commitments each and every day that draw us into a closer relationship with the one we serve, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, transform us. Transform us into the image of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing.